Our Father, we thank you for these moments and we sit with your word before us. My single and pressing request in these moments set aside today is that you would awaken wonder in the hearts of your people. That with fresh eyes and the eyes of our hearts being peeled open, that we would see this text as if it is new to us today and that we would have our wonder awaken to to blaze within us as we are stunned by your good and faithful and creative work all around us. So help us to engage these moments with expectation and energy, giving you our best because your word is worthy of our attention and our affection and our focus. Come Holy Spirit, even now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've been with us, you know that Last week we studied the last page of the Bible, and this week we study the first page of the Bible. We finished it, so we're just going back to the beginning and starting it up again. And uh, I'm really excited about a series that we're starting today that will run through the fall on Genesis 1 through 11 called Origins. It's an exploration of the origins of all things. As we slow down and pay attention to what it is that God has said about where things have come from, where we have come from, and how we find home in the world. We're going to explore the origins of all things today, and we're going to study mankind and gender and race, and we're going to talk, uh, pardon me, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about what it looks like to experience rest and all of the races being created and sin and depravity. We're going to experience the origins of all the things that we experience in our current world. And I think that as we engage in this experience, it will ground us in a moment where it feels like the world is spinning and coming apart. That in in thinking deeply about our origins, we can reorient and find ourselves in the midst of God's world and understand who we are and where we fit within this world. And this morning, we start with Genesis 1 with a call for, for wonder to awake. As many of you know, I was a youth pastor for years, and I led a lot of youth trips, adventures, mission trips, and one of the most dangerous and exciting and surprising and sometimes hilarious activities that a youth pastor has to engage in on youth trips is waking kids up. And uh, I remember on one trip, we were in the Pacific Northwest doing some hiking and kayaking, and kids were worn out at the end of every day, and sleeping in their sleeping bags in their tents and trying to awaken them morning by morning grew harder and harder as the trip went on. And I remember one leader and guide warning these, these high school students time and again, if, if you don't get up, here's your 10-minute countdown, here's your five-minute countdown, here's your one-minute countdown. And there was one guy that still was just slumbering. And this leader went in with a bucket of cold water and just all the noises happening in that tent, I was hoping they were both going to come out, you know, whole and healthy, and, but it's kind of some yelling and hollering, and then he came out, he's like, I'm awake! I'm awake, dripping wet in the cold Pacific Northwest uh, early morning, and, and uh, in many ways, what I've been considering of Genesis 1 is, it's, it's been my prayer that this would be a cold bucket of water dumped over our wonder. I think to be a modern person in a world full of entertainment and noise and busyness, living in an urban setting, it's easy for our wonder 
to go into a deep sleep. Wonder is defined as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And this morning, what we are going to engage in as we study Genesis 1 is, a, is an exercise in, in inviting our wonder to awake. Inviting God to douse us with a bucket of cold water that is the truth about his creative act and the way that all things exist because he has willed them to exist. Now there is one potential cul-de-sac that we could find ourselves in. I just want to name it out front and and kind of name it and set it aside. That we could easily find ourselves in the cul-de-sac of trying to articulate exactly how all of this took place. There's, there's some really well-meaning, thoughtful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that would say this is very clearly a literal narrative text that is telling a story of six literal days of creation that took place sometime six to 10,000 years ago. And there are other well-meaning, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that would say this is a poem that is intended to be read as a poem and that it, it leaves space for God to sovereignly oversee the, the long, expansive work of evolution. That would be called theistic evolution. So if you're in the theistic evolution camp, or you're in the creationist slash uh, intelligent design camp, let me say that that's not what this sermon is going to be about. I actually have a really strong conviction about one of those camps, and it doesn't come to bear on this sermon because I don't think that's the primary thrust of the text. And I'm happy to talk about it with anybody that wants to. I think this would be best kind of had in dialogue in house churches among families. So I encourage you to have the conversation and think deeply about it. I'd encourage you to consider the other perspective, whichever one you're in now, so that we might understand and love and understand where, where this community is coming from. But I think the main thrust of this passage, if we ask the rest of the Bible, what is the thrust of this passage? And it's this, it's calling us to wonder and to worship. Throughout the Psalms, there's Psalm after Psalm that says... This is why you should exult and praise because God created everything. You can look at Psalm 8 or 136 as beautiful examples of that. But even more than that, when we get to heaven, we get a heavenly picture in, in Revelation chapter 4 of the angels and the elders face down, worshiping God, and they're saying, you're worthy of all, worthy and honor and praise because you created everything. Genesis 1 is going to be generating fierce Holy Spirit-inspired, radical worship in your soul long into eternity. And so we want to read it through that lens this morning, saying, how can this text, and, and how can it function as it's intended to function, and it has functioned for the people of God throughout time, as a big, beautiful bucket of cold water to be dumped over our wonder, that we would awaken and go, ah, this God is truly worthy of my worship. Five statements that we can stack our hands on that are true in this text that will serve as our bucket of cold, refreshing water this morning. The first is this. God's creative act is relational. It's personal. When you start the Bible from the very first verse, our Father God, God the Father, is assumed 
He has not defended or explained. There are no philosophical arguments trying to convince you of his existence. He, from the very, far, from the very first moments, he is assumed, he is present, he is active, he is overseeing as the sovereign architect of all. And then coming right on his heels is the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is said to be brooding in this text. It's the same word that would be used of a, of a mama hen or an eagle in the nest over the egg, and they hover just above, creating the warmth that creates the context for life. The Father, sovereign architect, the Holy Spirit brooding, creating the context for life to happen. And then the Father speaks, and as his voice breaks into the the silence, it creates all that is. And by the time we get to John 1, we learn that his very word is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Father, Son, and Spirit engaged in a familial act. It is relational and it's personal. Hear it fresh. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God. There he is. He created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, creation, when we, when we peel it all the way back and we're trying to make sense, because at some point, however we view our existence, when you peel it all the way back, we're left wondering, well, what is there down at the nub, right back at the beginning? And what, what Genesis is proclaiming is that there is relationship at the first. There's a personal, relational God who within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, is engaged in a creative act. And the rest of the Bible begins to unveil for us that this is a gracious act. God was not lonely and God was not bored. He was perfectly satisfied within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving and serving within himself. And there was an explosion of creativity as a gracious act so that you and I could participate in the perfections of his glory. You see, in these early verses, we see that God's creative act is relational, it's personal. And I'll be real honest, this bolsters my faith. Because whatever is at the the origin of how you view the world has come to be, does it make sense of the world that you experience? And this bolsters my faith because I experience day in and day out a world that is shot through with relational realities. We are profoundly relational beings and we are aware whatever our background, whatever our faith background or cultural background, we are aware that love is the greatest force in the world. It has caused more songs to be written or, and books to be written and paintings to be, com- to, to be produced that all manner of artistic expression has been in response to the power and the beauty of love which has sta- stayed true throughout time that if we peel back the layers it shouldn't surprise us that what we find is a familial act graciously and lovingly engaged in. This is a relational act when we get down to it. God's creative act is relational, statement one. Statement two, God's creative act is orderly. Did you hear it? We took time to read the whole text. It's good to have God's word wash over us. And as you heard it read, did you hear how rhythmic it is? How orderly and structured This is what leads some to say that this is very clearly a poem or a song. However we're reading it, whatever genre it's situating into, it is very 
ordered and structured. Even from the time you get to verse 4 and 5, you're introduced to a statement that is repeated throughout the chapter. It says this, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. At the end of each unit of God's creative activity, there's this repeated phrase that creates kind of structure and, and you see that it actually runs through the whole chapter. It shows up in, uh, again in verse 8 and 13 and 19 and 23 and 31, creating this rhythm, this structure. This is not a chaotic undertaking. This is measured. This is balanced. This is the work of an engineer God who thinks in very succinct, precise steps. He's very ordered. Even the way that his days, when you zoom out and you explore the days, days one through three correlating to days uh, four through six, you see that on day one he's creating light and dark, and then on day four he creates the, the sun, the moon, and the stars that are going to govern and differentiate the light and the dark. On day two he creates the sea and the sky, and then on day five he creates the fish and the birds that are going to exercise dominion in those realms. Then he creates the fertile earth and then he creates the land-dwelling creatures and he creates mankind. And then in the culmination of his creative act on day seven, he's at rest. Next week, we'll talk more specifically about day six and on the following day seven as we explore the glories of this God who has implanted his image on mankind. And then in the climax of his creative act, he is seated at rest saying, there is no threat to my reign or rule in this sphere. You see, it is an orderly work that progresses. Many scholars have made the note that this orderly work actually became the seedbed by which modern scientific, scientific realities took shape. That it's been noted many times over that science could not and would not emerge from an Eastern understanding of the world that's either pantheistic or where there's different gods that are warring against one another and things are fundamentally chaotic. They are unearthed and, and constantly it's unpredictable. But it was actually a monotheistic understanding of the world and the worldview that, that kind of surrounded a monotheistic understanding that there is a single God who operates like a very precise engineer that gave men and women the confidence that if I zoom in and I explore this, there are going to be laws that uphold it. It's going to be precise and measurable and it's going to to kind of work according to the ways that we might expect it, because it always has. There's a certain sense in which the preciseness of God actually gave birth to our understanding of modern science. You see, God in his creative act is profoundly orderly. So here we have it that it's relational, and then it's orderly like an engineer, but then amazingly, the third statement that, that actually brings us into a unique space is this. God's creative act is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's unique because there's a lot of things in the world that are functional, and there's a lot of things in the world that are beautiful, but when you find things that are simultaneously both, you go, oh, well, that, that's amazing. That's what made Steve Jobs and Elon Musk very wealthy men. They, they were precise about their engineering feats, but they did it in a way that was beautiful and captured people's imagination. And people went, wow, that's amazing. The sort of God that we're being invited into is beginning to 
expose himself. He's saying, come and look and understand who I am as I reveal myself to you, that he has the precision of an engineer and the beauty of an artist. You see, it actually shows up throughout the text that everything he creates is visibly good. It's visibly good. The word in Hebrew for good is a pretty broad term that can mean a lot of different things. Oftentimes when associated with sight, it means beauty. Because what it means is whole and perfectly put together. It's, it's, it's excellent. And what the text says over and over is that it was visibly good. This, this could easily be translated that it was stunningly beautiful. You see it in verse 4 and 10 and 12 and 18 and 21 and 25 and 31 where there's repetition. We need to pause and pay attention because the author is making a point. It's as if God, Father, Son, and Spirit are creating in this expression of his joy and grace as he has this expression from within himself. He, he, one after another, is speaking things into existence and then stands back and goes, beautiful. And then he's creating a gracious and joyous explosion of his character and he stands back and goes, that too, beautiful. Over and over and over what he saw it's good. About five years ago, my family and I were traveling in Tennessee, and we, we kind of on a whim decided to go to a, a, a place called Ruby Falls. Now, when you have little kids, there's not a lot of things that you want to go do on a whim because there's, there's a lot of things we've invested time and energy in that's kind of like a wah-wah. <laughs> you know, like you finally get to the thing, and the kids are like, this is so boring. Why are we doing this? And you're like, ugh. I did it to, to amaze you. Be amazed, you know? Um, so I, we try not to do things that we haven't like researched and we know are going to kill it because we wanna, if we're going to put forth the effort, we want to make it great. This was one such thing where we were really kind of going in blind, but we're like, we're going to give it a shot. We saw a few billboards. Maybe we should do this Ruby Falls thing. And I'll tell you, it delivered. Uh, Ruby Falls is an underground waterfall in Chattanooga, Tennessee, under Lookout Mountain. When you go, you have to go 1,100 feet below the earth, and then you come out into kind of a horizontal cavern, like it's a, a sideways cave that has been formed out, and so you get to walk through. There's stalactites and stalagmites. All the stalags are there. And uh, so the journey's interesting. You're like looking and going, oh, this is cool. And, and it's kind of at times, you're pretty tight in, and then all of a sudden you get to this spot where it just, it opens up. This is what it looks like. It's a 145-foot underground waterfall. And what was amazing is that when we got there, I think the walk was about a half a mile. It might have been 100 yards with little kids sometimes. That you're, I don't totally remember. I think it was like a half a mile. And so you, you walk through all the stalags, and then you get there, and it opens up. And what was so amazing about this is that every member of my family did the same thing no matter what age they were. They all went. <laughs> and they did it for a while. It's one of those, like, as a mom and a dad, you're like, giving the, like, killed it. Um, even to the point where it was like, I think it's probably time to go. We saw the waterfall, and they're like, no, no, can we just hang out for a little while longer? Like, we just, it really was one of those spots where you go, Beautiful. But what's so amazing to me about Ruby Falls is that it was discovered in 1928. 1928, by accident. 
a guy by the last name of Lambert that was drilling, thinking that they could use these caves for something, these underground caves, and they was drilling through, and he found an 18-inch wide kind of uh, space that he could crawl through. And just for the pure sake of adventure, he's like, I got to crawl and see what's on the other side. And so he crawled that half-mile journey that we went on and came out and found these waterfalls. He was the first human being to ever lay eyes on them a thousand feet below the ground. Do you feel it? Hidden beauty everywhere. Whichever camp you're in, theistic evolution, creationism, however you see it, what's true is this. That waterfall had been flowing either for 200 million years or 10,000 years purely for the delight of God himself. (laughs) No one else even knew. They're just walking up the mountain, walking on rocks. They don't know that below them is one of the most glorious things. There's this stunning reality that God and his creative work is so beautiful, it's almost like he can't help himself. It's like dripping off his fingertips if he had them. That it's just, it's just beauty in every direction shot through. Wonder awake. It's beautiful in every direction. Like in ways that is only for God's heart, hidden beauty everywhere. You see, he's not just relational. And he's not just orderly like an engineer and beautiful like an artist. At the risk of being redundant, I'm going to say this. The, the, the fourth statement is this, that God's creative act is creative. <laughs> it's creative in the sense that it's almost as if he's begging people just to pause and to consider, could anyone with less than an infinite mind have produced this? Like consider my boundless character, that his creativity stretches out in every direction to the point where it's, it's nearly humorous. It has to just cause you to stop and to chuckle. Uh, I'm going to invite you into, this is an interactive thing. I'm going to invite you into a guessing game. I want you to tell me if you can identify a few creatures that I want to put up on the screen for us. Okay, so I want to I test your knowledge. Does anybody know what that one is? Sure, it's Mr. Narwhal. Hi, buddy. Um, Mr. Narwhal, do you know what that is spiraling out of his face? That's his canine tooth. Very good. Yeah, that's his canine that just got a little unruly. It just kept going. Uh, This is a medium-sized whale, a mammal, that actually has to hold its breath. But do you know that this mammal, this guy, can hold his breath for 25 minutes, and during those 25 minutes, he can swim to depths of 4,500 feet. 4,500 feet under the... just. And then pop him back up with his, his canine. Now who comes up with that? I mean, what a wild... Let's see the next one. Go! Oh! Anybody know what that one is? Blobfish, well done. I'm not, don't tell them, but you're doing much better than the 9 a.m. Uh, that's the blobfish. The blobfish lives 4,000 feet below the surface of the sea on the face of the ocean. They actually say that if you could see it in its natural habitat, that it's not the most hideous creature on the planet, though that's often the title it's given, that it looks like a normal fish 4,000 feet down because it's living under the pressure of all the water, but when you pull it up and you remove the pressure, it just like, it's just, that's all that's left. It doesn't have, do you know what the blobfish does? It lives on the bottom of the ocean and it goes like this. And it waits for fish to swim into its mouth. That's the sum total of the existence of the blobfish. (laughs) 
and also recently discovered, delighting the heart of God and a mystery to all of humanity up until the most recent history. The blobfish. Uh, and then when you, when you read a text like verse 20 through 23, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. It's hard for me not to hear like a, a beautiful deep chuckle. He's like, oh, you're going to have fun exploring this. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, the narwhal and the blobfish with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There is evening and there is morning the fifth day. Okay, just a few more. Indulge me. Uh, tell me how you do on this one. Anybody know what that one is? Sure, a sloth. These guys are great. You know, sloth's full, full speed. Like if the predator is coming for the sloth. Nine meters a minute. Nine meters. That's just like nine steps, you know, like... That takes him 60 seconds. He's just like, uh, That's top speed. Very low cal diet because he doesn't need any cal. He doesn't ever use it. He just hangs. Once every eight days, he comes down out of the tree to use the bathroom. That's the big outing. And then he goes back up and he hangs some more. That's the life of the sloth. Who comes up with this? I love this guy. How about this guy? Who said that? Unbelievable. Did anybody else know that? We got one. That was the, that, I stumped everybody on that one last one, but that was quick. Pink fairy armadillo. The world's smallest armadillo. It is three and a half inches long, and it weighs four ounces. It lives in Argentina, and it bur burrows through sand. And the way that it burrows through sand, listen, they call it the sand swimmer because it moves as quickly through sand as a fish through water, just like, <laughs> ah. can you feel God just like giggling as he's creating he's going like oh you're gonna get a load of this one it's a tiny armadillo and it swims in sand I just feel like father son and spirit are really living it up they are enjoying himself he is enjoying himself as he creates this beauty in every direction how about one last one anybody the eye eye an eye eye all right i got to stump this one this crowd once okay eye eye big ears rodent teeth long middle fingers and they're awake at night tough luck for this little primate that's a tough set of affairs but you know it actually works really well for him because what he does is he eats grubs and trees and the way that he does it is he knocks and then he can listen with his huge ears and he can hear what's happening to the grubs and then when he finds a spot where the grubs are active, he gnaws through the bark with his rodent teeth and then with his long middle finger, scoops them out. There you go. Unbelievable. Verse 24 and 25, God said, the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creeping things, pink fairy armadillos, Beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You see, 
It is a relational expression of his grace and his love that he created. And he did so in a way that was orderly and it was beautiful and it was creative. And then lastly, it was lavish. Lavish. Like a really wealthy king that is building his castle or his, his capital city or his kingdom in such a way that everyone who shows up will go, whoa, this guy is loaded. <laughs> like there is no limits to what he can imagine and build. There are no parameters on the extent of his glory and his power and his wealth. God created in such a way that would humble anyone that would pause to consider. They would have to say, wow, how lavish and stunning in scope. This has certainly been the case in the last few weeks that our, the scope of the the known world continues to stun with the James Webb Space Telescope sending back its first photos from the deepest parts of space. And what we are continuously learning is that if you just took one square inch of the night sky from your parameter and you were able to zoom in, what you would find is billions of galaxies. (laughs) Stunning photos of the creative, beautiful work of God. And I love the way that he tells the story about the creation of the stars. I just want you to hear it in verse 14 through 16. It says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give them light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights. You see, God's actually speaking into a context where the people were coming out of a community that that worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And so he won't even use the term sun and moon. He doesn't want to confuse things. He's, he's dethroning these realities, making sure that he's central. So he says, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. <laughs> it's three words at the end of verse 16 that the James Webb Space Telescope is exploring. And the stars. The expansive nature of God is displayed in his creative act in a way that is supposed to slow us down, to cause us to catch our breath and go wonder awake. Like it's beautiful and it's creative. And if we think underground waterfalls that are 145 feet tall will make us catch our breath, what measure of beauty and glory are hidden in the corners of distant galaxies that no one has ever laid eyes on but God is just going look at me wonder awake you see he's lavish in his scope he's also lavish in his love in the midst of it listen friends the God who has spoken galaxies into existence by the power of his word He knows your name. He sees you. He, in his infinite glory and power, was willing to humbly engage with the creation that he has created by taking on flesh and entering in. Can you imagine measuring the universe with the span of your hand, so to speak, as the psalmist says, And then zooming in on one fleck of dust flying around one star and saying, I'm going in. Such condescension and humility because he was committed to you and to me knowing him, knowing his love for us. He lived among us and then he died for our sins and rose again 
Jesus Christ, God in flesh, was revealing the true character of God, that he's not just lavish in his scope, he's lavish in his depth, saying, look at the ways I've loved you individually. I've come for you. To my non-Christian friends in the room, would you hear, hear with the ears of faith, This infinite and glorious God is calling you by name. He's beckoning you to come and to find your heart's greatest satisfaction, wonder, and joy in his character. Inviting you to confess your sin and to believe in his son Jesus and to experience home in his bosom. And to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, can we together lay down our screens, lay down all the things that shrink our world and cause our marvel and our wonder to go to sleep? And can we walk outside and take a deep breath and say, wonder, awake. The relational, beautiful, creative, orderly, lavish God is beckoning us to worship with the angels who are face down saying you are worthy of it all because you created everything. Wonder, awake. Holy Spirit, I'm asking right now, like even as I pray over my brothers and sisters, would you do something in their hearts and souls causing, causing us to grow as worshipers? Father, would you pour out your spirit to accomplish that work? Jesus, we thank you. You are glorious and good, present with the Father from the beginning of time, yet willing to come and to be known by us and now to fill us, to feed us, even as we come to this table. Who could imagine? So we bless you, we thank you, and I'm asking that you would cause us to live as men and women with wonder that is wildly awake in our souls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.